0: Words, they get golly hard when they jumble, jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle, murk pool, black like squirtle and cake roll, cold blood is with this rhyme I'm a boss.
1: This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the search for purpose, understanding, and meaning. And I've been thinking about reality and our often misguided confidence in the certainty of our perceptions of it. I've been thinking about the distinctions between faith and knowing and the need for external validation. I've been thinking about proof, what that means and how often it's not enough to let us dismantle old belief systems, even in the face of uncontroverted evidence. I've been thinking about what each of us finds hard to believe and our willingness to ignore the evidence substantiates it when it's contrary to the pervasive worldview. My guests today are Dr. Eben Alexander and Karen Newell, co-author, of Living in a Mindful Universe, a neurosurgeon's journey into the heart of consciousness. Dr. Alexander is also the well known author of the New York Times bestselling book, Proof of Heaven, a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife, which recounts his life altering experience during a week long coma after suffering about a factorial meningitis. Welcome, both of you, and thank you so much for joining us today, and that got me thinking.
2: Well, Ellie, thanks for having us. It's great to be here.
0: Yes, thank you so much.
1: So I want to start a conversation, just in case people um, aren't aware of your ex- early experience, and how you ended up in a coma.
2: Well, I, uh, it's important to point out I had spent first 54 years of my life honing a very kind of reductive scientific uh, worldview. I was teaching neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School, thought I had some understanding of how brain, mind, and consciousness work. And then in uh, November of 2008, Over just a few hours early in the morning, I was driven deep into coma due to a a severe case of bacterial meningitis, and it was really the worst kind you can have. It was gram-negative bacterial, Uh, and it drove me into coma over just a few hours, and I was deep in coma from that uh, illness for about seven days. Uh, And any physicians out there will realize, especially with the details of my medical record, that that... Uh, is a very foreboding and, and really no chance for any kind of recovery, which is what my doctors estimated at the end. And at the end of that week, I came back to this world. But the interesting thing that as the story evolved over many weeks and months after that, in discovering just how ill I was, was the fact that the medical details of my case and the damage to my neocortex, the human part of the brain that was so well documented, would have disabled any kind of robust uh, ultra real conscious experience and that is exactly what I had. So as a brain scientist, I was now faced with this very profound evidence that the physical brain is not the creator of conscious experience at all, but that in fact uh, there is much more going on in our understanding of the nature of reality. And I've spent the last nine years since trying to wrestle with the, the spiritual power of my journey and the neuroscientific aspects of it. And that's why I'm often asked to give talks to medical and surgical groups about this, because there really is no explanation from within Western medicine for my kind of experience. And it reveals something very profound about the mind-brain uh, connection. And this is where I think things get interesting and where I've come to realize as we, uh, Karen and I, Uh, divulge more fully in this book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, that this is an awakening coming into the entire scientific community. It's a profound awakening about the nature of free will and of consciousness itself, and uh, of uh, the, the nature of the kind of underlying physical world is not existing as anything outside of mind. And as strange as all this may sound to people, it's actually the direction that quantum physics and modern neuroscience and all of that is really headed, and it's very liberating for the individual human because it puts us back in uh, having tremendous power in the unfolding of our lives uh, compared to the old materialist model that I harbored before my illness, and uh, that's, that's the view that uh, materialist model that's coming to an end uh, because the evidence really doesn't support it at all, and this is where it gets very exciting.
1: Well, it is exciting, and I'm thinking as I'm listening to you speak, you're kind of a walking, talking dichotomy. You know, you mentioned in your book that you, in your lecturing circuit, you'll be in two very different groups often, um, and sometimes you'll talk very much about the scientific aspects and then sometimes very much more about the the spiritual elements. And yet you and your relationship with Karen, you guys are really melding the two worlds, not only in your intellectual consciousness, but also just in, in the way you guys are moving through through life. Um, You had said, I want want to talk a little bit about the inspiration for your new book, and you had said um, the status quo is not working and you wanted to help open-minded skeptics come to a richer worldview that fully embraces modern spirituality within the leading edges of physics, cosmology, and consciousness studies, that we need an awakening and it's a time to stop the the recent madness. And I was just wondering as I read that, what you think your pre-coma self would have thought of that declaration and also that aspiration?
2: Well, I think my pre-coma self, given the uh, incredible line of reasoning as we presented in a living and a mindful universe, would have been pleasantly astonished by this uh, kind of refreshing turn in worldviews that enables us to blend our uh, most advanced concepts from quantum physics and cosmology, uh, the very nature of causality and of all reality, with something that we can sense deeply as as human beings, and that is that we really do have meaning and purpose in our existence, and that we we can uh, manifest mind over matter in very profound ways, beginning with our health. And the secret to all of this is realizing that we are really all part of one consciousness and part of that one mind, and this illusion of self and of separation is something that our culture perpetuates And yet the deepest studies of consciousness and mind-brain relationships today really indicate that we're all sharing the dream of that one mind. And uh, that things like telepathy and precognition, uh, past life memories in children indicative of reincarnation, all of these very profound lines of evidence are pushing us to a far grander vision of mind and brain and the very nature of, of human experience. And that is what is so profoundly exciting and why I think this revolution is so important.
1: And so were you an open-minded skeptic prior to the coma? Or was the universe just prodding you one step further to sort of fully embrace it? Or, or well, was it really I, I, a dramatic dramatic alter uh, change?
2: Well, I'd like to say I was an open-minded skeptic, but as I confessed in, uh, in the book Proof of Heaven, you know, I, I, uh, in retrospect, I seemed a little dense. Uh, I was a little slow on the uptake. Uh, And I feel like I needed a a big thumping, and that's what happened with my week in coma due to meningoencephalitis, was a very profound thumping that kind of forced me into a new uh, realization about the nature of reality. And uh, uh, I certainly was open enough to come away uh, seeing the lessons from my coma journey as very profoundly life-shifting. And many of the things that I had believed before, and especially my religious beliefs, Uh, I'd grown up in a Methodist church in North Carolina, had fairly conventional notions of Christianity. That didn't work at all. Uh, You know, my journey was very clearly one of an infinitely loving, all-powerful, creative source, a God force at the core reality that one can trust and that uh, has tremendous influence over our lives. So in that sense, it might have matched my prior religious beliefs. Uh, but uh, the things like reincarnation, which were shown to me in my journey, and, and since then to be absolutely essential to any understanding of all this, and the oneness of mind, were very profound new concepts. And also the the fact that our religion tends to say that one cannot become one with God, one with that deity. To identification. And yet I think what many near-death experiencers, what my journey showed very clearly, is the very spark of our conscious awareness is a direct linkage to that infinitely loving and creative force at the core of the universe. So we are all deeply connected and one with that God force. And this is where I think the near-death community and uh, other advances in spiritual and scientific insights about the mind-brain connection are taking us to a whole new level of understanding that, again, is tremendously liberating and empowering for the individual human being.
1: Karen, have you thought about um or or could you think about now, if you haven't but I'm sure you have why Proof of Heaven was on the bestseller list for forty weeks and near the top for for more than two years? What do you think it was that that made the book so popular what What were people after do you think wanting to um, read the book
0: Well, I think people really want to have an answer to that lifelong question, you know, why are we here? What is our purpose? And what happens when we die? Our society is full of people who are afraid of death. And when there's some hope or some answer that perhaps there's not an end to our life when our physical body dies, I think it brings great hope. I think it brings great uh, Power. Many people attracted to the book are people who were experiencing grief, say, of the uh, loss of a a child or a dear loved one. And knowing that that relationship can continue, knowing that people can encounter each other again um, in the afterlife is quite comforting, especially in this day and age when everything seems to just be tragedy and uh, lots of bad things going on. It brings wonderful hope. Well,
1: it's interesting because it seems like in the majority of interviews I do, whether it's on depression or addiction or all the elements that we talk about in my interviews, there's always a question of a search for purpose and meaning and connectivity, and that seems to be lacking a lot in society today. Um, Does it matter, and this question's pretty much for both of you, and and either one can answer or or both, Um, does it matter if you can prove it? Uh, A lot of the book that goes through, it seems, sort of an attempt to reconcile the scientific method and your scientific path and, Karen, your discovery of this sort of new world that isn't maybe currently science-based, one would think, and yet in reality, when when one digs a little deeper, it is. Did it matter to, to either of you or both of you to be able to prove what you came to know?
0: Well, interesting for me, you know, um, speaking of science, I didn't find a lot of answers to those kinds of questions in the scientific world. In fact, they want to just pretend like God or a force or keeping religion out of it, any kind of force or, or creative uh, energy, isn't real. And so, why would we look to science for those kinds of answers? And yet, in our modern western culture that's exactly what we want so we've put ourselves kind of between a rock and a hard place here and for me my answers came from my personal experience just like Eben's seven-week coma journey really turned him around and many people who have experienced these types of things directly They don't need the proof. That direct experience is their proof. And for Eben, it certainly was for him, along with all of the scientific evidence to back it up.
2: And I would add that it's been especially crucial to me, and this was a lesson that Karen has been one of my uh, main mentors uh, in delivering this message, but finding that the answers lie within us all. That is so crucial that we actually have ways of knowing uh, these very deep truths, and uh, it comes, as you might expect, from exploring consciousness, from going within, because as as we explain in Living in a Mindful Universe, the scientific model that is taking the, the world of, of consciousness studies by storm is called filter theory. It's one where primordial consciousness exists as the creative source of everything that emerges in the physical universe, um, and yet... Uh, we, we need to develop that relationship in a very profound way uh, because that consciousness is what creates reality. And uh, when you realize the physical brain is not the creator of consciousness at all, which, of course, is the assumption of modern science that has led us so far astray, uh, and realize that consciousness is actually allowed in through the filtering mechanism of the brain, then you start to realize that going within and exploring consciousness get, is the way of getting out into this universe and manifesting uh, the reality of, of our dreams, of our higher soul. And so it's really a, a, a profound shift in our understanding uh, that is, at its heart, very scientific, but also is very much about the spiritual nature of the universe and that we are spiritual beings. You cannot explain it all by the cold, chaotic mechanisms of you know classical physics which is what the modern scientific community is still steeped in and yet quantum physics is what gives us the door that opens tremendously into the the reality of consciousness as being primary and fundamental
1: and the universe decided to use you as the prime physical example of this, by putting you in a coma and um, having you have experiences that were scientifically not possible uh, because a neocortex is creating a sense of reality and yet yours wasn't operational at that point.
2: But that's all true, except it's very important to point out that my experience is similar to literally millions of other experiences that human beings have in the current era. So if it were just me having my little experience, that wouldn't be of any great value to anybody. Uh, But the fact that my experience in many ways confirms the reality of millions of other such journeys, and you start to realize the similarities of these journeys that are independent of one's prior beliefs, and uh, like religious beliefs and even scientific beliefs, can be completely upended with such an experience. And that's why it's important to pay attention to what happens in these personal experiences and realize that any sentient being on Earth has the power to cultivate this kind of relationship. You don't have to wait to be smote down by meningitis to get this. Well,
1: and All let's,
2: human beings can get to well, this. Well, and knowledge. let's
1: talk about that a little bit because... I think that really is the crux. You really hadn't believed many of these stories prior to your experience. And then you having the experience sort of opened the eyes not only to other people's experiences, but you were willing to accept and know that what had happened to you was true in the face of external skepticism. And maybe at that point, in the face of, of maybe not knowing also that there was external evidence to support it. And so how did that shift feel where you were really able to say, okay, you know what, I know this, um, because it seems like such an important people for a thing for people to embrace, that you can know something, and it's a difference between knowing and having faith. You might have faith in something, but there comes a point where you know it, and it doesn't really matter if anyone else believes it or not, or whether or not it can be externally proven.
2: Well, that's very true, and that's why when you examine uh, the world of near-death experiences, and like I said, there are millions of people out there who have reported these experiences alive in this world today. Um, But what you find is they have no fear of death. They realize from personal experience they've got the evidence that they need. And when you put it together, uh, for example, with the information we present in Living in a Mindful Universe in our newest book about all this, um, that shows the commonality of these experiences and how they also fit perfectly in what you anticipate with some of the deeper interpretations of quantum physics coming to this world today, then we start taking a far bigger view. Uh, it turns out that um, you know, the materialist science that I had worshipped before my coma, uh, by and large, just doesn't believe that this stuff can be true because it doesn't fit the theoretical model of physical matter as all that exists brain increased consciousness.
0: And speaking of that, you know, that belief that they hold, the the strict materialist scientists, that this stuff can't be real, holds them back. And it really does take opening your mind just a little bit. That open-minded skeptic is very important because it's not that you just have to wait for a near-death experience to happen or or something like that happened to Evan. These experiences can be cultivated very intentionally very systematically and this is something i did i explored all kinds of different ways to really get behind the physical get behind to that energy that i would read about reading about it only takes you so far listening to this conversation only takes you so far. You really need to dive in and generate that personal experience. And then when they happen to you, you need to believe that it's happening. So many people maybe have a loved one come to them in a dream and they think, oh, I just made it up. But very often these things are not simply made up. We've been conditioned to believe that they're not true because of our leading materialist scientists who really have a lot of effect on our society. So what we're really trying to do is turn this all around and really make people realize their personal experiences are very important. They're often written off as, you know, oh, that's just anecdotes, so that doesn't count. But everything that happens to us is in a personal experience and they they should count and they do count.
1: Well, it's so true, Karen, because we're sort of taught to not trust our experience or our beliefs about it or our reactions to it or our intuition and sort of propagandize to believe that, you know, we can't really trust something until it's been proven by the scientific method. And, and in your new book, I was, I was groaning at one point because you're talking about some research where they were proving, um, not just psychic ability, but the ability of psychics to connect with souls who had passed. And when you were describing them setting up the experiment, I thought, oh, my gosh, Like they are doing everything that is sort of in opposition to how the process wor- really works on an energetic basis as, as kind of creating these barriers between the person who they were trying to reach and the information. And yet, even with that, it, it still was extremely successful.
0: Yeah, that mediumship research, there were five levels of blindness. And yet, with just one single name, say Mary, uh, and the medium uh, not knowing or even seeing the person who they were related to in front of them, could rattle up all kinds of information. And very interesting, that research included, thank goodness, because the open-minded scientists really can bring this into their work, despite all of the kind of laboratory setting. But part of the uh, of the uh, thing there was that the, the person here who they called the sitter, the one who had a departed loved one who was on the other side, as they put it, um, was supposed to make a request uh, in their mind for their loved one to show up for the medium. And this seemed to make a difference. Just having that intention of wanting to connect. And as it happens, we all can connect to our loved ones, whether it's through a, a symbol or a sign or a song, or some people get crazy text messages after their partners have died or phone calls. And and as you said, so often we deny them, but they're real. And very often we don't tell other people about them. And so it's very interesting, Evan's story, when we go out and give presentations, so... Many people come up to him and tell us both things that have happened to them that they've never told anyone before now. And they're finally feeling comfortable that a scientific mind is willing to accept their experience as real.
1: Well, and Dr. Alexander, you had had a similar experience when your friend um, tragically passed away in an accident drowning in the ocean, and you had one of these moments where something inexplicable happened uh, with his computer, and as Karen said, at that point, you didn't tell anyone, and you sort of pushed it away as, well, to to align that with all the rest of my beliefs and the way I've been told and learned that the world works, this has to be just a coincidence or something.
2: Well, that's a, a very good point. And we, we tell that story because that was something that I really did not share with a soul. Uh, it occurred back in 1994 when I was kind of deeply involved in a lot of my neurosurgical work, uh, and it was a profound and shocking, I mean, just a, a punch in the gut uh, reality of, of, of the survival of the soul of my friend beyond his physical death. That was just stunning in its power, and yet the rational scientist in me said, "Wait a minute, that just can't be." It, and I just I rejected it for a long period of time until after my coma, when I realized that of course it was trying to teach me something very uh, deep and real. And uh, the place where we tell that story in Living in a Mindful Universe, where I confess to, you know, being victim to that same kind of uh, uh, worship of the scientific assumptions that turn out to be false, and yet they're very compelling in our culture. Uh, I also share two other stories. Uh, one of them, of course, is of uh, Michael Shermer, the editor of Skeptic Magazine, and a particular uh, blog post that he put in Scientific American about a uh, presumed after-death communication, and also a story about Nikola Tesla, uh, you know, the uh, one of the most brilliant uh, thinkers of the 20th century, of much of our Modern electrically powered world is uh, thanks to uh, the brilliant scientific insights of Nikola Tesla, uh, and yet he had a very profound experience when his own mother passed over, uh, one that shocked him into realizing uh, that the spiritual realm had beautiful ways of communication far beyond anything we could explain in our materialist science. And yet he tried to talk himself out of it over uh, coming months and in discussions with his biographer. And and I think this is a very important point. Our culture tries to, you know, embarrass us for even bringing up such things. And that's why I hope Proof of Heaven has had a benefit of taking the lid off so that Millions of people will come out with their stories and also that uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of physicians and nurses will help to uh, spread these stories from their patients who have died and then come back to this world or from stories from families where death did occur, physical death, and yet there was profound evidence of an after-death communication.
1: So just to clarify, materialists believe uh, it's all about electrical and chemical reactions, that there's no more to our physical reality than that. Um, And yet there is no framework, theoretical framework, to explain really consciousness and the relationship to brain and consciousness. And um, Penfield says, the brain alone does not account for the the mind. Um, And precognitive evidence is primarily ignored by these scientists. and maybe we'll talk a little bit about why, because it seems on both extremes, the the radical, religious, and then um, materialistic scientists, don't want to look at these experiences of the individual and also of the collective experience that's been shown and evidence that's been shown and supported by quantum physics that the reality of our world is not as it seems um, because it completely upturns sort of both groups worldviews. Um, how did you navigate that change when you had an experience that was so life-altering that you couldn't ignore it anymore? How did you come and maybe part of that was through writing this book to reconcile the the two worlds?
2: Well, I, I think it's important to point out when I first came back to this world, uh, waking up from coma on day seven, my brain was absolutely wrecked. I didn't even remember uh, any words or language. I had no idea who the loved ones at the bedside, my mother, sons, sisters, I had no idea who they were. All I knew was where I had just been on this incredible journey that seemed to last for months or years, although it had to fit really between days one and five of my seven day coma. And uh, so when my doctors would tell me, well, your brain, we can't understand how you're coming back to us, but You can forget it all because your brain was far too damaged to have experienced anything. It had to be a vast hallucination. And yet, to me, it seemed more real than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. Uh, But for a while, I I defaulted to my physician's view. Well, it had to be a massive hallucination because of this extensive destruction of my neocortex. And, of course, we entertained some of those hypotheses in the appendix of proof of heaven. Uh, But what I came to realize in the months afterward Uh, especially in reviewing my medical records, talking over with my doctors, looking through the medical scans, neurologic exams, everything else, is that there's no way that the neocortex can be the important generator of consciousness that modern neuroscience believes it to be when I had such a profound and robust ultra-real conscious experience with my neocortex completely disabled. So uh, over months after my coma, I came to those realizations, and of course people who've read Proof of Heaven realized that four months after my coma, I had a very shocking piece of information that connected the dots between my coma journey and some of the entities and beings that I encountered there, specifically that beautiful guardian angel on the butterfly wing. Uh, And I I came into some realizations about the identity uh, of that uh, guardian angel that just shocked me no end and brought all of this together in a way that proved to me the reality of the journey. And so it really is... Uh, it takes you know a huge shift in thinking. We really have to go back to square one. Uh, and this is all stuff that we discuss in Living in a Mindful Universe because you really have to question the fundamental assumptions at the basis of our science and our religious systems and of our common everyday human experience and really start rebuilding it up from from the ground up. And that's what I've had to do, but that's what the whole modern scientific community is having to do in their understanding of brain, mind, and consciousness. So my journey has been one that's very parallel to the tremendous and rapid shift in paradigm coming to the scientific world today about the nature of reality.
0: I think we have to be really careful too when we talk about what is truth. I mean, a belief is one thing, but actual capital D truth is another. And with so many thousands, I'll say, of belief systems out there that people on this planet are walking around with, whether they're cultural, political, religious. I mean, we're all walking around with different sort of views of how the world really works. And so what are the truths? What are the things we can all count on? And that's something we really challenge our readers and our participants in seminars to think about, where did our beliefs come from? And If we really take a look deep down at the root of those beliefs, are they still true to us today? Or did they just become assumptions like all of those scientists have been trapped into? And I would say many dogmatic religious uh, systems have gotten trapped into. When you start to realize that there are so many different ways of viewing the world, and if you continue to think that my way is the capital T truth, You really start to paint yourself into a corner, and so really keeping that open mind is paramount.
1: Well, and also to appreciate that what are the truths of science change over time, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Modern physics has proven through the scientific method that the world is not as it appears, that there are vibrating strings of energy in higher dimensional space, and that most of an atom is actually empty space and energy, um, and that I think a perfect example and one that Dr. Alexander, you, you can, uh, expand on is neuroplasticity that early on it was believed and not that long ago that the brain was one a separate system not connected to the other systems of the body not connected to the endocrine system in, in the way that we understand now and that also neuroplasticity was impossible that the brain couldn't really repair and rewire um, decades ago that was thought to be impossible so maybe we could just talk about that a little bit so that people realize the extent of changes even in science in the last couple of decades
2: well, I think that there, there has been tremendous growth, and a lot of it just has to do with point of view. Uh, you know, and it started with that erroneous uh, assumption that the physical world is all that exists, and of course, that's kind of what is presented to us in our culture and in our kind of daily living. We kind of see ourselves as uh, material beings that exist observing uh, and moving through this uh, physical world of ours. Uh, feeling somewhat independent of it. And and yet what quantum physics has been screaming at us uh, for almost a century now uh, is the realization that consciousness must be fundamental. You cannot paint consciousness as some emergent property of the physical brain. It doesn't really work that way. And the evidence that the brain is not the creator of consciousness is actually quite solid in uh, in some of the uh, examples that we find in modern neuroscience. For example, terminal lucidity, which I mentioned in Proof of Heaven. Uh, this is a, a fairly common observation. If you talk to hospice nurses and nurses who work with, with dying patients, uh, most of them have seen this, and uh, many say they see it uh, routinely. Uh, and that is where you have an elderly demented patient that, as they approach death, Um, and they may not have uttered a meaningful phrase or sentence for weeks or months, but as they approach death, they gain great clarity, and they come back to life almost. They gain great reflection, communication with those at the bedside, often at a time when they're seeing souls of departed loved ones who are coming there to escort them across. It's really shocking. Terminal lucidity completely debunks the simplistic and false notion that the physical brain creates consciousness out of purely physical matter. Uh, Another category, in addition to terminal lucidity, would be cases of acquired savant syndromes. Uh, where some kind of brain injury or a stroke or autism, some kind of damage to the brain, unmasks a superhuman mental capacity, like the ability to memorize a phone book, look at one page per second, and look at uh, you know, 20,000 names and numbers over uh, a minute or so, and then have the ability to recall those. That happens in the setting of brain damage. Um, Likewise, uh, the ability to calculate pi to thousands of digits in one's head. This kind of thing occurs after brain damage. So it's really striking what is going on here. And it turns out that for most of the 20th and early 21st century, modern neuroscience has completely missed what quantum physics is trying to say and has defaulted to this simplistic and false Newtonian determinism that believes the consciousness is the epiphenomenon of the chemical reactions and electron fluxes in the brain. And that is absolutely false, especially when you get to the modern evidence that memory is not stored in the brain. And this is something we explore in detail in Living in Mindful Universe. Um, And also the very fact that consciousness is not created anywhere in the brain. And especially when you get into territory like the scientific evidence for past life memories in children, indicative of reincarnation, more than 2,700 such cases have been studied by the Division of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia by Ian Stevenson and now Jim Tucker over the last five decades or so, 2,700 cases of study where the most ready explanation seems to be one of actual reincarnation. And in that case, obviously, the physical brain is not serving as the repository of memory because it has to work somehow between lives to explain those reincarnation cases. So the scientific community, as it gets beyond simply denying the evidence of all of this, evidence for non-local consciousness, but actually studying it and trying to make sense of it, that's where we're going now. And it turns out that uh, the physics community really opens the door broadly because quantum physics... Uh, is very clearly an opening to the reality of consciousness as fundamental. And that is a a line of thinking and evidence that we pursue in detail in living in a mindful universe. And this is really where the scientific world is headed now. And it opens the door to a tremendous... not only explanations for human experience like NDEs and after-death communications and uh, past life memories in children showing reincarnation, but also it pretty much demands it. That is what is so striking is when you get deeply into the physics. It's not just saying that uh, the spiritual realm and the afterlife and reincarnation are allowable, uh, but in fact at the deepest levels it's pretty much telling us they are required to explain the reality we experience.
1: So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about consensus reality and metaphysical idealism and uh, near-death experiences and reincarnation. We're going to fit that all into our, our remaining half hour. But in the short break, I want people to think about, I'm guessing that everyone, if they think about it, knows someone, either had a direct experience or knows someone who experienced terminal lucidity or who experienced a situation where the in our house when my mom died the toys were going off at the same time every night two in the morning um for for weeks and um when she was passing away she was at home and she was passing away there was a moment where and it's just what you said you could tell all of a sudden this channel opened up and she'd been lucid but it was as if someone else and probably those souls who had come to help her cross over we're there. And, and she all of a sudden sat up, looked at my son, who was two and a half, and said, oh, what a strapping young lad, which she never would have said. And I thought, all right, that's not my mom. That's like maybe a grandmother or a great-grandparent who's there and, and is seeing my child for the first time. So anyway, I want people to think about that on the break. Um, we'll be back in just a moment. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I am speaking with Dr. Eben Alexander and Karen Newell, the co-authors of Living in a Mindful Universe, a nurse surgeon's journey into the heart of consciousness this is kdpi 88.5 fm ketchum listener supported non-commercial community radio we're streaming live at kdpifm.org this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Dr. Eben Alexander and Karen Newell, and we are back. And we're going to fit four pages of notes into the last 25 minutes of the interview. But it was just there was there was so much um, in this book and, and really a fantastic read. So I want to talk about... Um, consensus reality and sort of the the rules of sort of what have you to have come to believe as the what are the rules actually that are um, organizing our experience of this physical realm and the ones that are are not really malleable um, and then we're sort of all um, actors in this play what is consensus reality
2: Well, I I would start by saying that uh, to really answer your question, one has to get fairly deeply into quantum physics. And most people, of course, would rather just uh, think they left quantum physics uh, back there in those classrooms in high school or college. Uh, And yet it is absolutely essential to getting uh, kind of a deeper understanding of reality. And the view that is emerging uh, from the most refined current experiments in quantum physics really indicate that each and every uh, observer, each and every uh, soul has kind of an intimate relationship with the universe. Uh, we are in many ways one with the universe. And the best way to look at consciousness in this setting is to see our sense of kind of humanity, that is that I can have the sense of myself, you know, of Evan Alexander, who has these thoughts and this identity and this personal history uh, and these kind of worldviews um, that uh, that that all of that is is a program very much in flux, but it is not isolated within me. And in many ways, my conscious awareness of the universe
0: uh, is
2: really this broad, uniform awareness of, of existence that we all share. Uh, just as the founding fathers of quantum physics, people like uh, Wolfgang Pauli and uh, Werner Heisenberg and others, um, noticed there was no way that you could explain the results of quantum physics without... Uh, knowing that consciousness is first and fundamental uh, in creating all of this emerging awareness. So this consensus reality, you know, we have a certain agreement based on some assumptions about our our common experience that, for instance, when I see certain things and colors and experience a symphony or a sunset or uh, holding a baby or things like that, that the words we use to describe such experiences suggest that there are certain commonalities, but we have to be careful not to take it too far in terms of the assumptions about the agreed physical reality. Because, again, the quantum physics is, is uh, not uh, kind of murky on this. It's very straightforward and says uh, that we each have this unique relationship with the universe and that none of what we witness exists without certain choices and kind of interactions that we as sentient beings have with the universe. So the old materialist model that it was all just some accidental epiphenomenon, uh, you know, chemical reactions and fluxes in the physical brain with no such thing as free will, uh, is false. Now, the other side of all this that is a very important realization is not only that scientific... uh, kind of explanation that we each share a unique uh, relationship with the universe where our very existence and our thoughts and kind of interactions with it are crucial to the unfolding reality um, is is also uh, the notion uh, that we have tremendous influence over that. And that's where I think it becomes most important because we can all sit there and agree on uh, you know a consensus reality, even admitting that quantum physics tells us that that is not uh, some physical world existing independently of us out there. Uh, but once we realize this power of consciousness, we start realizing that we have influence over our lives. And this is where it's important to point out one of the most obvious and glaring counterarguments to materialism that exists, and that is placebo effect. Placebo effect is getting stronger over the decades. The fact that people can believe that their physical body is going to heal from an illness, from some pain, from cancer, from an infection, and have that uh, belief actually engineer their recovery. Uh, is really shocking. And the placebo effect, like I said, is getting stronger all the time. And and the placebo effect is just the first level of explanation of how your mind can influence your own personal unfolding reality. Because it begins with our health, but it also greatly expands into all the events of our lives, all the relationships we have, uh, the things we're here to learn and teach, Every bit of it is a very important kind of soul school, learning ground and teaching ground. And we're all participants in that soul school. And this is where uh, expanding our notions of free will and of understanding of modern quantum physics is so empowering for each and every one of us. And it all comes from going within and developing a much richer relationship uh, with that universal mind or consciousness that it expresses through each of us.
1: So you say there's some easy questions and some tough questions as far as uh, consciousness goes and that the easy questions will be maybe answered in a century or so and the the tough questions much further on. But I love um, Dr. Anna Yusem talks about in her book fulfilled, you know, you don't we don't really have to understand scientifically how it's all working. We don't really have to understand quantum physics if we're not interested in it. We can just go out and test it. We can tell the universe and say, "All right, you know, I, I, I'm i going to test this um, in different ways, and it can be pretty uncomplicated and, and quite fun. And the two of you did that over the last couple of years. Uh, you were really testing different aspects of this new perception of reality and one of those I, I want to talk about that you talk about in the book is the um, research that you did on um, reincarnation and uh, especially the kids reincarnation. You give an example in the book about a little boy who was um, at, I think, two and a half um, playing with an airplane in a way that caught his parents' attention. And, and turns out that he'd been a World War II uh, fighter pilot. I mean, you could just one of you talk about that example.
0: Yes, there's a book out there actually called Soul Survivor, and this little boy was having dreams. He would, he would kick and scream laying on his back and say, plane go down in fire, plane go down in fire. It was all kinds of things that were going on, and when his parents who were actually very skeptical of all of this. In fact, their religious beliefs were really keeping them from uh, wanting to address it at all. But when they did the research, they actually found out he knew things he could not have known. And he ended up meeting some of his pals that he knew on his ship, his Navy ship back in, uh, uh, in what was it, Okinawa? Okinawa? Yeah. And uh or Iwo, Jima. Iwo Jima, excuse me, and uh, he actually met some of his mates from the ship, and he that he knew he knew things that uh, he couldn't have known. When well, he I love was that he was that playing
1: person. with the, the GI Joes, and it turned out that the ones that he had named the same in play the same names as the co pilots he had been with in World War II in the past life that they they had similar physical attributes. You know, it was like this one had had red hair in life, and this one's the one he ended up calling that name. And, it just seems yes, the, details, it the details of those examples are are so rich and sort of very, I think, hard to dismiss, you know, that that there are many areas where we hear something and we sort of want to dismiss the belief. Um, in it, because maybe it's so contrary to uh, the way that we have understood the world to believe. And there is a tricky part there too, right? Because we are here in this physical reality. And so we need to operate in the physical manner a- as well, because we came here to have a physical experience. And so there's that balance between the two. And, um, and it seems that that's sort of been your path, Dr. Alexander, is navigating in the last decade, those two worlds, and and finding a balance between between the two. What, well, that, that how how has so. your life changed, changed because of that?
2: Well, I would say my life, everything in my life has changed uh, dramatically uh, in, in terms of this kind of realization, just because it flips everything that I ever thought I believed before kind of on its head. And it also... Uh, reinvigorates the power with which we can influence our unfolding reality. I think another uh, uh, factor to mention, just in terms of your discussion of the consensus reality out there, uh, and this is a point that we we basically spend five chapters building up to in in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, but that is that people need to realize that what they've experienced their whole life, uh, you know, in experiencing the, quote, world out there, all the, you know, the, trees and buildings and lakes and mountains and stars in the night sky, you've never experienced anything other than the inside of your own consciousness. This is a very crucial thing to get. And this is where the quantum physical connection comes in so strongly, because when you realize that everything that you've ever thought or perceived um, was nothing more than ion fluxes, chemical reactions, synaptic release, and neurons, all at a of, you know, an atomic and molecular level in the brain, um, that's where all of a sudden you start to realize that none of that physical world has to exist out there at all. And again, this is a very radical thinking because we're approaching a a philosophical position called metaphysical idealism, which is basically that the universe is mental, that all of, of what we call the physical universe Uh, simply emerges out of a mental universe and the mental universe is one in which individual souls, especially as part of this one mind, can have far greater power. And of course uh, the realization for most of neuroscience, even though most neuroscientists don't seem to admit it or get it, is that all of those perceptions and thoughts are absolutely in the realm of the quantum. They all depend on very tight confinement of ions within ion channels that allows Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to manifest as consciousness creating this reality. That's exactly what is happening. Uh, and uh, again, it gives us great power, but it's a complete reversal, 180 degrees opposite to the beliefs that I harbored before about the physical world being all that exists and brain-creating consciousness, which I now realize is completely false.
1: Well, and maybe we should clarify, too, because I think that might be a scary thought for people at first, that that the physical world isn't real and that it's all just in my brain. And so, so it may lead to one feeling sort of very disconcerted and that they're all alone, where in reality, if you take it a step further, it's exactly the opposite. Because it's more that you are absolutely not alone, and that you are absolutely a part and um the uh just as much as as everything else the consciousness right that 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 you are connected to all of this it's not that you're just all alone in your brain with no physical existence and and you it seems. Um, Dr. Alexander, you had a desire to go back to that state that you did feel where you were connected and a sense of purpose and meaning and oneness and that you had in the coma. And maybe some of your near-death experience research after was a desire to go back to that feeling. And I was wondering, you said you had a clear memory of it and you could call up the memory of feeling that way. Were you also able to easily call up the feeling and the experience again, the feeling of that connectedness?
2: I would say you can't do it without the feelings. I mean, the feelings are crucial, and this is something that Karen was uh, crucial uh, in my own learning. Uh, you know, as a neurosurgeon, uh, uh, you know, Harvard brain scientist, I was always focused on brain, mind, consciousness, and even coming back from my journey and realizing how love was the most important ingredient that bound all of this together. I was still way up in my head, and Karen was the one who really helped me to realize it's all about heart consciousness, about connection, that we're all in this together, and we're all sharing that one mind. And it was her uh, demonstration from having lived a life where she was based in that heart consciousness and that sense of love and well-being for all Uh, that helped me to kind of grow into a much richer understanding of it. It's the exact opposite of of the picture you were portraying earlier of isolation, of, of solipsism, of being the only one who exists. When you start to realize that we all are in this together, the physical world is only the stage on which it presents. But the thing that actually exists is not that physical world but it's our mental perceptions of it. And that is where the action is. This whole universe exists for sentient beings uh, to uh, learn and, and live and teach uh, together uh, in this evolution of all of consciousness. And Karen was the one who introduced me to the importance of feeling that resonance of heart consciousness and how it bound my awareness with that of all other beings around me.
0: And you really you know,
1: had... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Karen.
0: Well, there's science to back that up, too. You know, very often scientists want to dismiss emotions as even being important. They're just a distraction. You shouldn't be proud of them. You should hide them, mask them. And in reality, our emotions are what drive us. Suppressing them doesn't do us any good. Um, all of those people who are suffering from addiction, and it's all a, a sign of spiritual emptiness, something that's missing inside. And in fact, when you first start, well, when I first started to meditate, one of the first things I discovered, especially when I was focusing on the heart, is that deep alone feeling. You feel, and this is kind of a universal wound, I would say, that all of us have this wound of separation somehow, of being alone in the world. And when you can get past that, when you can actually experience that aloneness, some call it the dark night of the soul, you, you reach that bottom, you can spring back up into this amazing kind of realization that you're actually not alone at all. And we can, all of us can learn to generate this ourselves. And it really starts with uh, the work of HeartMath Institute in uh, California who have discovered that just a feeling of gratitude generating a feeling of gratitude in your heart, not the meaning of it in your mind. That's what we usually turn to. But what does it feel like to really feel grateful? This can create an amazing what they call coherence between the brain and the heart. Many of us think that the brain is in control of everything, but they've also discovered that the heart sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. And the most amazing thing to me is how the heart Field is an electromagnetic field that extends from your body up to three feet, maybe longer, much longer, uh, wider. It is based on, the size of that field is based on your current state of feelings and thoughts. And so this field actually affects the people around you. And this is what's so amazing to me is that what I'm feeling will affect people around me, whether I'm aware of it or not. And generating an awareness of just that fact and taking it on each of us, taking it on ourselves to only affect those people around us with beneficial feelings, this is really where it all begins. And so we, we, I've been hearing in this conversation several times, you know, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. And it really is the opposite of what we've been taught. And that's what makes it so hard. That's what makes it kind of scary sometimes when we don't have that structure that we've learned to trust is actually suddenly found to not necessarily be correct and it is scary but it also points to finding the answers from within you always have you your awareness is the only thing that you've ever been aware of so it really makes sense to become more attentive to that awareness and trusting that intuitive sense that feeling sense that we've learned to dismiss is actually the most important thing it is absolutely the opposite of what we've been taught
1: and Evan, you really needed to learn how to embrace your emotions. You'd been told um, at an early age you'd been uh, adopted and you'd been told that it was impossible for you to feel feelings of abandonment from being put up for adoption, but that, you know, that that was not possible. And yet the truth was you had these feelings and you did have these memories and you had learned to sort of shut off your, your emotions. And, and part of this journey was learning to re-embrace them.
2: Exactly. And uh, so much of that, as people have read Proof of Heaven realize that but we expand on it and living in a mindful universe, much of my struggle as an adoptee, of course, was with that abandonment wound. But that's really a universal wound. You don't need adoption stories uh, to have that, that wound present. And so many of us um, suffer from that. I, I would say that uh, the vast majority of the world's ills today really have to do with kind of a spiritual vacuum. Uh, that is the result of our predominantly materialist uh, kind of scientific worldview. And that's why a lot of what we're talking about today, and and certainly what we talk about in in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, is about a much more optimistic and much more empowering worldview that really puts human free will back front and center at having of major influence on our unfolding reality. And I think that is probably one of the most important lessons for each and every one of your listeners because no one is ever alone. We are all deeply involved in this, but the, the probably the best way for each of us to see it and experience it and live it is by going within, and that's why developing a daily practice of meditation, whether you only have 10 or 20 minutes or have longer. I try to meditate an hour or two a day, and I've been doing that the last seven years. Uh, This going within is a tremendously uh, powerful technique for gaining health, wholeness, sense of purpose and meaning in life, and also a profound sense of connection to others, not just other human beings, but all of life. Uh, throughout, uh, you know, around this planet and throughout this cosmos, and realize that the, the, the binding force that brings all of that together, uh, as I had mentioned in Proof of Heaven but was still yet to really uncover based on Karen's teachings, is love. Uh, That feeling of unconditional love, which has infinite power to heal and realizing that we're all in this together, that, you know, from my limited uh, previous perspective, I might have seen my enemy or my nemesis out there. But after my coma came to realize that we were all just souls in this journey together and the people who had seemed like challenging to me. We're really near and dear soul mates. So by taking that higher, broader perspective, I was able to incorporate a much richer worldview that really sees the win-win situation in all circumstances, and also gains great comfort from that sense of connection to others, and that we're really all bound together through love, and not through competition, uh, not through uh, you know trying to uh, eliminate each other or force others uh, into our worldview, but actually that we're all growing together. This uh, evolution of consciousness is something in which we all participate.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I've been speaking to Dr. Evan Alexander and Karen Newell, their new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. And, and the book's a pleasure, and it was a pleasure speaking with both of you. Thank you.
2: Well, thanks so much, and people can learn more at ebenalexander.com and...
0: Sacredacoustics.com. All right. And thanks
2: for having us
1: on. All right. It was a pleasure. Bye bye. Bye
2: bye now.